Today, what might amount to something of an oxymoron where Christianity and politics try to meet. Welcome to Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. I say that like it's an oxymoron, but I, I don't quite mean that. It's not impossible to have some expression of Christian politics. Uh, I, I think it comes about through an experience that I myself had uh, a long time ago. And uh, my experience was uh, being caught up in the culture war of the 80s. Now, I've had this discussion with you uh, before. So, let me just let me back up right now and say I'm not going all the way back down that road again. That's not the point of this conversation. It's a realization that the way we think about where Christianity and politics meet uh, is, uh, I think, misguided in some ways and missing something. And then the way we assume wherever that meeting happens must be realized the way we think the expression of our political convictions should come out in our government. Uh, Whether we're doing it ourselves or we're voting for the people who are doing it or whatever it is, I think it's equally misguided and way too narrow because we forget that what God brings together in us is always in us individually and personally an inadequate expression of our Christianity. So ultimately, I I want us to get back to a point of understanding other people a little better than we understand them right now, and therefore understanding our role in our relationship with them a little better as well. So anyway, not, not exactly the same conversation as before, but as background, I do want to mention that in my experience, this this is what happened to me. I'm caught up in the culture war of the 1980s, right? I'm a teenager in the late 70s and the early 80s. And uh, I mean, I'm I'm in the heat of it. So I won't go all, all back through that history. And I'm 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 in it, committed to it. And then, you know, over my years of pastoring and over a couple of decades, I come to the realization that the political and cultural war that I was thoroughly engaged in and committed to was not actually the thing that was prescribed by Scripture. And and I'm not saying that the things we cared about were wrong or that none of the things we cared about were prescribed by Scripture. The value of human life comes from Scripture, and it's prescribed that we recognize and respect that. So I'm not saying that all the things we cared about were wrong, but I am saying that the political solutions we were advocating for were not in any way prescribed by Scripture. 
I also am not saying they were proscribed by Scripture, but they weren't demanded by the Scriptures. And so here I am saying in my life, I'm going to do everything on the basis of Scripture, and I'm so committed at that time to doing these political things that it was a comeuppance for me when I realized that a lot of those commitments just weren't being demanded of me by Scripture itself. And then I come to this realization that the culture wars are kind of like the mafia, you know, or a gang. There's no way out once you're in. Uh, you can't quit us. You know, we're, we're, we're in it. And, and I don't mean by that, you know, the, that you had to continue being on, in this political party. I didn't say the political parties were like the mafia. That's not it. I'm saying the culture war is like the mafia. The no way out part was that if you said you could no longer be a part, the response was that now you had joined the other gang. Now you've become a part of the other party because there is no neutral ground here. You've got to choose one side or the other. You cannot have left the culture war altogether. So I'm left standing here, and I'm saying that as if some person said that to me. Of course, I'm just voicing this abstract realization that I had. So I'm left standing here with a bunch of other people who are standing in the same place. A bunch of other people, in fact, I come to realize who were already aware and already committed to following Jesus and scripture, but not treating it like a political tool. I'm, I find myself standing with a bunch of people, some who are already there, but all of us living in a world where a willingness to engage in anything of social or cultural or moral value in this life is defined by everybody else as something that has to be done politically. It has to be done through government. I could give an example of that. When we uh, at Criswell College, I'm, I'm the president here, we found some documents that uh, George W. Truett had used uh, to help establish what became Baylor Hospital, and now the Baylor Hospital system, and then Baylor Scott and White, uh, as it is now. And so he, you know, when they had established that, it was just the Baylor Sanitarium. I mean, it wasn't Baylor, it was the Baptist Sanitarium, and what became the Baptist Hospital, and then it became Baylor, and so on. And so in finding these documents, it was kind of a hist cool historical observation and moment. And so we said to ourselves, we want to give these documents to Baylor. And so as we were looking through the documents, what was fascinating was that uh, George W. Truett was so committed, and I mean constantly talking about it in his sermons and in his writings and in the establishment of the sanitarium, taking money, looking for donations. A lot of these documents were just, I collected this amount of money from this person and so on, uh, sort of a record of donations that were the foundation of the hospital system now. And that when he was doing all of that, he was talking about the need for the wealthy to give up their wealth and to serve the poor and all of this language that we associate with socialism. And as he was, you know, saying all of these things, as I'm reading him saying all of these things, I was also at the same time having some conversations with ethicists from around the country who were talking about some of these issues. And they brought up George W. Truett, and they brought up the, the, the focus uh, among many Christians to avoid socialism and the focus instead on uh, liberties and so on like that. 
and I, you know, brought up the example of George W. Truett, and I was saying, and I was saying, I, and I know that's the case. I know that he's an advocate for uh, a really heavy focus on personal liberties and against the encroachment of government on, but how do you put that together with this appeal to give up your wealth and take care of the poor? And they were saying, and we were both pointing out that it's because the presumption that that would be done through government or through governmental means is in us, not in them. The idea that everything that's going to be done socially or politically or culturally has to be done through government is a more recent development in American culture. It's not uniquely current or contemporary. I'm not saying that like no one ever had those ideas. Of course they did. But it wasn't prominent like it is now. If anything is going to be held as a universal value in our culture, we just assume it ought to be made to a law, into a law and enforced through the taxes and regulations that, uh, that are held against everybody in the culture and so on. That's how we think about it. So we're living in this world now where I want to back out of the culture war, which means backing out of the political wars. And yet anything we bring up to talk about in terms of social or cultural or moral value, instead of just abstract concepts, I mean, I can talk about the Trinity all day long and nobody cares. But once I start talking about either abortion or uh, sex abuse survivors and what ought to be done with them or uh, any of those categories of discussion, then all of a sudden, it's just, it's seen as a political discussion. Well, what's your policy? What's the regulation going to be? How are you going to enact it? Because that's how we see everything of that nature in this life. It's something that ought to be accomplished politically. And, you know, it shouldn't have been that way in terms of our nation's origins, where we came from, which I'll talk about later. And it certainly shouldn't be that way because we've chosen to follow the methods of Jesus before we commit to anything else. And Jesus is, of all the other things he might or might not be, he is most definitely not political. Explicitly, they come to make him a king, remember? And he just refuses, walks out right through the midst of them. Nope, not gonna do that right now. This is not my time. Now, I'm not saying he's not the king. He is the king of the universe. But even in the early church, they had to realize it didn't matter. And this is these are crazy divisions compared to where we are. I know we think we're radically divided as a culture, but can you imagine being divided over whether you want your children raised in the Hellenistic and Roman culture of an oppressive occupying force? or in the traditions of your Hebrew parents. Can you imagine the division there? And in the early church, they're having to realize, you know, we're going to have people from both sides of that political spectrum here, and they're welcome in leadership. The idea that we could reduce all of this to something political is just not present in the early church. And so, what I wanted to do was sort of back up and say, uh, let's understand, first of all, the things that we all kind of agree on about what Christianity represents. We all, every believer I know of, would say, yeah, these things are important in some way or another. So, for instance, in inherently in Christian terms, there is a value to personal liberty, right? 
and, and the freedom of conscience. Now, again, you may not agree that that's the main priority, but I mean, it's not hard to read, for instance, you know, when Jesus is speaking with the religious leaders in Luke 17, and they say, oh, is it time for the kingdom of God to come or not? And he says, hey, don't say the kingdom of God's over here or over there because it's in you. The kingdom of God is in you, and I've talked about that in its context and how it leads to Luke 18. All that's really important, but the opening statement on that is don't act like there's something that has to happen outside of you when the work that God is doing begins inside of you, and you're responsible for it. And it's the same thing when Jesus is is standing before Pilate, and he says to him, you couldn't have any authority over me whatsoever if it weren't given to you by my father. That's not uniquely about Jesus. I'll point out why I'm saying that in a moment, because he's not the only one who does it. Others of his followers say exactly the same thing, in different words, but exactly the same thing to the authorities who are trying them and holding them accountable. In the early church, when the early church is in opposition, and I just mean in opposition because they're doing what's not prescribed by the leaders in Jerusalem, Peter and John end up, after having gone to the gate, beautiful, you know, and the healing and the sermon and the thousands are believing. The high priestly family has them arrested. On the next, you know, this is what it says in Acts 4. So on the next day, the rulers, the elders, the scribes, they gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, all of these guys who were part of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power did you do this? This is after they'd had them arrested. So they take them out of the arrested. They take them out of the jail. Later on, they're talking to them again, and they call them, and they charge them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John answer them, and they say, hey, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you, the legitimate authorities in Jerusalem who are over us, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge because you have that authority. Go ahead, judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Their their practice of Christianity in the early church is explicitly about saying, we're going to have to answer in our conscience to God. And you can use whatever governmental authority you want to use against us. You can use whatever even denominational authority you want to use against us. But our conscience is going to answer to God for what we do or don't do. In the very next chapter, when they go out and they're speaking again, you know, and they're doing it uh, in violation of what they've been commanded to do, and then they get put in jail, and they the, the bars, you know, shake, they're free out preaching again anyway, and they gather them up again, and they rise up, and all who are with them, this is in Acts 5 when this is happening, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrest them. They put them in the public prison. During the night, the angel of the Lord opens the prison doors, brings them out after all of that happens, and they go in, they stand in the temple, and they preach again. When they brought them back again, this time a little more peaceably because they're kind of afraid of the crowd by now, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, this is all in Acts 5, I'm starting to read now in 28, we strictly charge you not to teach in his name. And this is the high priest who's going to be throughout the book of Acts. Paul is even going to say, oh, if I'd realized you were the high priest, I wouldn't have said this to you later on, right? This guy has legitimate authority in their eyes. And yet they say, so when the high priest said, we charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you are, you're filling Jerusalem with your teaching and blaming us for for his blood. Peter and the apostles' answer is what? We must obey God 
rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, and so on. All of this is, we're going to obey him. And so this is, you know, this, this is part of Christianity. It's built in to early Christianity is, you can hang me on a cross, and I am going to be faithful to what God has put in my conscience to do. I am convicted to be obedient to him above all else. That's sort of built into early Christianity. It happens with Paul, when, just like I was talking about a moment ago. It happens with Paul when he's brought before the council and he tells them, you know, our, one, of, one of our professors was saying this in chapel just last week. He, he rebukes them by saying, you whitewashed wall. You know, he rebukes to them and tells them what's wrong. And, and when he's, because they have him stricken and he says, that's against the law. That's contrary to what the law tells us we can do and not do you whitewashed wall, you hypocrite. And then they say, do you dare speak to the priest like that? And Paul in his acknowledgement says, oh, I didn't realize it was the priest. Sorry, buddy. You know, I mean, doesn't make what you did right, but I shouldn't have spoken to you that way. His acknowledgement of that authority, and yet the firmness with which he says, look, this is where I stand. I can do no other, to borrow the words of Martin Luther. Those are revelatory of the nature of Christianity and its appeal to our own standing before God that we have in Christianity built in this understanding of personal liberty and conscience that doesn't say that I can't be thrown in jail for what I'm doing, but does say my freedom is that I'm able to obey God, no matter what you do to my body. No, no, even if you put me into the grave, I'm still going to be obedient to God in the things that I'm doing. With the early church in Rome, exactly the same thing happens. If you put it in a different context than the early church and Jerusalem, Paul is still going to stand before Felix or Festus and declare his obedience to God above everything else. You can do whatever you want to my body, but here I stand. I'm going to be faithful to what Christ has called me to do. So in the early church, there's this understanding, and it's just built into Christianity, that there is a responsibility of conscience that brings with it a recognition of liberties. Again, I don't mean political liberties. I just mean a freedom of the soul, a freedom of the conscience that's sort of built into the values of Christianity. And, and, And again, I'm not extrapolating that forward to make it political at all. I think it ends up coming forward culturally, but that's something that we put onto it later. Right now, I'm just talking about Every one of us shall give account of himself to God, to use Paul's words in Romans. So you get the idea on that first one. So this is an inherent Christian objective. It's just sort of built in that a person should have a conscience that holds them personally accountable to God. Jeremiah doesn't compromise his prophecy when everybody tells him he ought to. Uh, tells tells him that that's what he ought to do. He's just not going to do it, and that's brought forward into Christianity, and it's what we've always been taught about it. That another fundamental teaching, another sort of intrinsic teaching within Christianity, which will seem like it's sort of on the opposite side of that, but is not, and it's ironic, is political submission. And this is apparent in so many different places and, and it sounds, again, it sounds the opposite of what we would expect from what I just said, freedom of conscience. But in all of those statements about freedom of conscience, you know, in 1 Peter 2, when we're being told all the things we ought to do, including caring for the poor and for those who are disadvantaged in this way and that way, it also says we ought to honor the emperor. 
We ought to be respectful of the authority that's over us. Uh, in Rome, we all know the passage in Romans where Paul is telling us that we ought to submit to the higher authorities, that they are there ordained by God to carry the sword, the executioner's sword, and that they carry it for a reason, to reward the good, to punish the evil. I've read all of that to you before in other episodes. I won't go through it all again, but the simple point is we have a really strong commandment in the church in a church that's under a corrupt and malicious government, one that's putting Christians to death, we're still being taught to be submissive to that government. That's how important political submission is. But it never becomes political power in the New Testament. It is political submission. So you submit to that authority, and you have to remember we're living in a world that world, not today, the world of the New Testament church, we're living in a world where it's not like we're choosing our government. You know, we'll have a vote and we'll decide who the emperor is going to be. That's not what's going on. So in that world where people assume divine right, and I'm not meaning that in the sense that Yahweh chose David, although that's also a case of divine right, the idea is that the Lord's rule, you know, the king's rule, and all the rest of us, we live within the authority that's there. And the idea of rebellions is an idea of chaos, and it brings danger, hazard to the world. And part of what the New Testament prescribes for us is a respect for the authorities that God has obviously put in place on the earth simply because they have their authority. That idea of political submission recognizing the power that's been given to others to rule over uh, is part of what's present in Christianity. And look, if you say, I don't know why you're making that one such a fundamental one or intrinsic one, it doesn't seem that important to me. When you read this in the epistles, it ranks right up there with uh, yielding to worldly lust, you know? So the two sins that are described Uh, so that we can understand who's obviously not a faithful follower of Jesus is those who give in to the lusts of their flesh and those who despise authority. Those are the two that are paired together. So it's not real hard to figure out how important submission to powers and authority is in the form Christianity takes in the New Testament. So there's personal liberty and then political submission, which seem at odds with each other, although they're not, by the way, because Paul can hold true to his conscience and be taken to a guillotine. I'm not saying that it would be a guillotine. You know, I know that comes later. My point is that he can then be taken to his execution, and he can go peaceably saying, I'm being obedient to God, and I'm submitting to the authority. I'm letting them carry out their execution. It's just part of what's happening here. So I'm not saying they're contradictory. I'm saying this is part of the picture of what we're supposed to recognize, which also tells you that we're not accomplishing a lot of things politically with Christianity in the first century church, nor would we expect to. It is, after all, a pretty inherently subversive religion in the first century. If you want to read about that, pick up one of the books by Alan Street. That's two T's at the end of Street in his name, and you will love what you learn from reading it. Uh, The man's a fantastic writer, and he's got great theology, and he's a great person to learn from. So get one of the books from Allen Street, and you can learn a lot more about the different forms of subversive Christianity in the first century to make that point. But then the other one, the one that's probably most obvious to most people, uh, and I think it's carried out pretty effectively and faithfully by most Christians, 
uh, is the appeal to benevolence. Christians uh, are always told to take up the cause of the powerless. Christ does it. The Samaritan does it. God commands it. Everybody's supposed to do it. I think the easiest expression of that, I could choose passages from the New Testament, examples that Jesus gives one after another, or any of the other epistles. But in James, he says it so obviously in two different ways that make us you know, a little confused about why he would prioritize this until we realize he prioritized it because it's a priority. And in James 1, the way he says it is, religion that is pure and undefiled. And this is James talking about the thing that actually reveals we're being obedient to Christ and living in the real law of liberty, the thing that frees us from sin. He says religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows. So children who have no power because they have no parent representing them, and widows who have no power in their culture because they have no husband representing them. I'm not saying that would have to be inherently true in other cultures. I'm saying in their culture, once you became a widow, you'd lost your your head, you'd lost your power. And so to visit orphans and widows, the powerless, in their affliction, that's why he calls it their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so instead of becoming like the rest of the world, using our power for our own advantage, we choose to use everything that God's given us to benefit those who don't have that power. We take up the cause of the powerless. Most believers I know realize that and try to do something about it in one way or another. I don't know of any churches or denominations that don't try to do that in one way or another. I'll come back to that later. In James 5, he says it in a way that's even a little more offensive because of the particular political form that our way of expressing Christianity has taken over the last few decades. So he says in James 5, uh, pay attention to me now, you rich men. Weep and howl for the miseries, the judgment that's going to come upon you eventually. Because your riches have rotted and your govern and your garments are moth eaten. Your government is moth eaten. That's Freudian. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth eaten. Your gold and silver has corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for yourselves in the last days. But look. Here's what the treasure that you laid up for yourselves is declaring about you. He says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, those are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You've lived in luxury. You've taken care of yourself. You've fattened your hearts like it was a day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the righteous, and he doesn't resist you. Now, the point here is that he's pretty explicit about saying when you're using your money for your own gain and not instead distributing it freely to those who are serving you, who are in positions of servitude, then you're going to face judgment. In that, he's saying, so don't hold back the wages from the laborers. That, that kind of communication, he's, he's just choosing examples that are real in their day. That kind of communication says Christianity is partially about taking up the cause 
of the powerless and caring about them because that's what Jesus does for us when we're powerless. We cannot make ourselves right with God, and he does, and he demonstrates it in so many different ways. There are other ways, there are other reasons that's true that I would get into, but those would lead to an entirely other episode, and we don't have time for that today. We don't even have time to finish this episode today. I don't even know why I started it. There's no way on earth I'm going to finish it ever. So I'm just going to go for a little while, and then we'll pause, and then we'll have to pick it up again. But for now, here we are. So we've got these basic values that we've talked about in Christianity that are sort of built into it, which are personal liberty, political submission, and benevolence. Again, we can talk details. I'm not talking about those politically just the realities of our relationship with God and how we're supposed to live them out. That's all. Then I think there is this historical progression of how Christianity's lived out that was inevitable because things were going to change. There wasn't always going to be a Roman Empire. Christianity wasn't always going to be in the position where everybody who believed was being martyred by the Roman Empire. So as those things changed, Christianity had to figure out how we were supposed to make those changes ourselves. I'm not a church historian. I've taught church history a few times. I know some details. I don't know others. I'm just not a church historian. That's not what I do in the big picture. I am a cultural historian. I understand the progression of things historically, culturally, and how ideas move from one uh, set of, you know, one culture to the next or one uh, period of time, one epoch to the next. I, I kind of get the idea of how that stuff happens, and that's what I want to talk about. So I'm not covering in detail a few things that I do want to mention in passing running through this. So I'm not covering in detail you know, the post-Constantinian pre-Reformation time of the church, the Middle Ages. I'm not covering that and all the different manifestations that Christianity took and the Catholic Church took and the opposition to the Catholic Church took and the other forms took, you know, the radical, the pre-radical Reformation, but sort of free church people that existed during that. I'm not doing all of that stuff. But I do want to point this out, that during that period, you had monarchs, emperors, autocrats, some kinds of rulers, you know, some kind of rulers, who, whose Christianity was measured basically in whether they supported the church's authority or they themselves expressed the Christian virtues. So like personal benevolence and things like that. Were they a benevolent uh, monarch or, you know, autocrat of some kind? And so either in support of the church's authority or in personal benevolence, you have this whole period of time when Christianity is being measured within politics because eventually, you know, it's not a mystery here. Eventually, you're going to have a believer, a, a person who's following Christ, and lo and behold, they end up in a position where they're the next king or where they are uh, chosen as the great ruler of the military. I mean, that was going to happen, and it did happen. And as it happens, we have to figure out how to express it. And so there's that period of progression. And then, and again, these are the things we're not talking about, but I'm mentioning, right? So we're not talking about it by talking about it. We're not talking about the Reformation and all the details that go with that. There is, in the Reformation and in that entire period when it's happening, an emergence of the significance of personal conscience, the importance of even just in terms of the the, the expressions of faith that come with sola fide and sola scriptura in the movements of Luther especially, 
so, I, I mean, that's incredibly transformative in the church's history and incredibly value. There is with that a sense that it's possible for the expression of Christianity to gain independence from the singular magisterium of history, you know, uh, at least the, the way they thought of the singular magisterium of history, in other words, sort of the Roman Catholic Church. And I'm not saying that derogatorily or complementarily. I'm just saying it that they saw themselves as finally having a way to think of being independent from those other authorities. And because of that, there's automatically an appeal to something beyond the church's authority. There's something else we appeal to, hence sola scriptura, right, during the Reformation. And yet there's still a respect for some kind of magisterial authority, for for some kind of authority of the masters of the church being able to, to give us the things that we are to believe. And this is present not just in, for instance, the Lutheran church, but the Anglican church and the Presbyterian church and in the formal expressions of those churches wherever, wherever they happen uh, in, you know, each of those movements during the Reformation, which again is transformative. And historically, that changes how the political or governmental expression uh, of individuals who are committed to Christ is going to be realized. How am I going to do this? How am I going to be faithful to God and is calling on me and my conscience to be obedient to him and yet be given this political authority when you can't just open up the book in the New Testament that describes what a person does when they're elected mayor or what a person does when they're suddenly found to be the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, as a Christian, as an emperor, here's how you make laws. Here's how you enforce them. And it just, that's just not present. So what do you do? Uh, there are a lot of hard decisions to be made. And there are a lot of conflicts that force those decisions to be made. And a lot of errors on every side in the process, but also a lot of good decisions made on every side in the process. In, along with that, which we're not talking about, there comes the Radical Reformation and the Free Church Movement which intensifies even beyond the Reformation, hence radical Reformation, it intensifies even beyond the Reformation the commitment to the freedom of conscience and the idea that every individual is making their choices and that the, and especially in the free church movement, this is the point of it, it's a rejection of governmental authority over the church at all. And so as Christianity be begins to take on a formation late in European history before uh, there is this uh, transatlantic, you know, establishment of the colonies and the free church movement in the Americas, but also certainly in the free church movement in the Americas, there is this rejection of governmental authority over the church that in some cases even expresses itself so far as to say, my denomination doesn't have any authority over my religious expression. Uh, even at the local level where you would expect it to be. And that's especially true among Anabaptists and a few radicals along those lines. So that's what we're not talking about, but you're aware that there's a lot developing and a lot of conflict emerging because you have all of those realms coexisting, right? You have the Catholic, and, I, and, I, and again, I'm not saying the Catholic Church in a negative sense at all, but you have the traditional church and the people who were committed to it and to making it the right expression of early Christianity. And then you have the Reformation happening alongside it. 
And you have the Radical Reformation happening alongside that. Separatists debating and arguing with Anglicans and those debating and arguing with Catholics who are debating and arguing with Presbyterians and Lutherans and so on. And they're all trying to figure out what on earth is the world supposed to look like. When we're overthrowing kings and revolutions, what is it supposed to look like when the government finally settles into some sort of form? And the way it settles into American religion and politics is what I do want to focus on because that's where we need to end up in the conversation. So let me just say this much right now, and then we'll sort of put a, you know, I don't know what you call it, a break in it for today instead of creating a metaphor. All of them, all the metaphors were going the wrong direction. So we'll just say what it is. We'll put a break into it and then we'll pick it up again next time to get there. But where I want to get is, 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 is here, where we're looking at ourselves as followers of Jesus and people who believe in Scripture, and yet looking at American politics and trying to figure out how we're supposed to relate to it. And, it, I, you know, I think it's, inher- it's just built into the way we express our Christianity that we need to figure out where benevolence fits in there. We need to figure out where personal liberty fits in there. We need to figure out where respect for governmental authority fits in there. And putting those three things together, because they're built into Christian values, actually reveals something about the different, the schismatic sort of, uh, different trends or directions in American politics. The divisiveness in American politics is not that different than the divide that's in Christianity itself. And I don't mean by that, our our Christianity is so imbued with political values that we're just Republican Christians and Democratic Christians. I don't mean that. I mean the actual values that we hold as Christians are expressed in these different political movements because Christians are trying to figure out how to express their Christianity in the political and governmental setting where we find ourselves. And so that's what I want to talk about. That's what I was trying to get to today, and I knew I wouldn't get much past just sort of introductory matters to start into the conversation. But but I will say this, the purpose of it is, is simple. I want to do a better job seeing the humanity and worth in every person. And I don't do it that well right now. There are times when people are doing things, and I just think to myself, how could a human being do that? And I certainly think it to myself about Christians. How on earth could a Christian act that way? How can a person do this? And when I do that, I realize that I'm erring, that I'm doing what I tell my students not to do, which is when you see a human being acting in a way that you think only an animal or some kind of machine could do, to realize that there's something you're not understanding about where they're coming from. Because human beings are human, and they bear the image of God. It doesn't make what they do right. It doesn't mean everything they do is right, not by a long stretch. But it does mean we ought to be able to understand where they're coming from. And in understanding where they're coming from, we can relate to them the way we actually ought to. We can begin to see them the way God sees them because God still sees human beings as bearing the image of God, all of them. So I could go on there, but I'm going to pause to make this point. I want to do a better job of that. And so I think part of the beginning of that is us recognizing, and I'll repeat this next time too, that Christ deserves better from us. 
than for us to call him a Republican or a Democrat. He deserves better from us than that. He is better than that because his way is better than either of those ways. His way and how we relate it to all of those ways is what I want us to explore and talk about next time. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at berrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.